What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an incredible week so far, and thank you so much for all of you who continue to listen to this podcast every single week and share it with your friends. Today, we're going to be talking about the Ultimate Fighting Championship, or the UFC, as many of you know it. Now, I'm a little bit biased here because I think that the UFC is probably one of the hottest companies in all of sports. The UFC is obviously the world's largest MMA organization, but financially, this company is firing on all cylinders right now. I'll give you a few examples. Number one, the UFC recently signed a $100 million sponsorship deal with Bud Light. That's the single largest sponsorship deal in the company's 30-year history. Number two, the UFC also closed a $21 billion deal in September to merge with WWE to form TKO Group. And number three, the UFC has already done over $1 billion in revenue this year. So for those of you that are keeping score at home, that means the UFC went from doing about $700 million in annual revenue in 2016-2017 to this year, they'll probably do $1.2, maybe $1.3 billion in annual revenue. That'll be an all-time record for the UFC. And many people think it is not slowing down anytime soon. You have to think about it. Their fighters are more popular than ever before. They're signing larger sponsorship deals. They're expanding internationally. They could potentially combine their media rights with the WWE to get even a higher amount than they would alone. And like I said, many people think this business is primed for growth over the next five, 10 years. But while so much seems to be going right for the UFC, there is one thing hanging over their head. I'm talking about the ongoing class action lawsuit against the UFC. So for those of you who aren't up to speed, let me just explain really quickly what's going on. There was a small group of fighters that filed a lawsuit against the UFC in 2014. These fighters were claiming that the company used improper strategies to control the MMA market and create a monopoly for themselves. Now, this lawsuit has dragged on for several years at this point. Like I said, they started the lawsuit in 2014. We're in 2023 today. But over the last six months or so, we've had quite a bit of movement on this lawsuit. And some of you might be hearing about it for the first time over the last few weeks. Now, the movement has been siloed to a couple different things. Number one, this lawsuit became a class action lawsuit meaning that those fighters now represent about 1,200 other current and former UFC fighters in this same lawsuit now. The judge also said that he wants to fast-track this lawsuit to trial, that it's been going on for far too long at this point, and many people are expecting a 2024 start date. But the third thing, and perhaps the most important thing, is that the judge also declared that all of the records related to this lawsuit be unsealed in a timely manner. This is important because it provides us a direct look into the UFC's approach to fighter pay, including athletes like Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar, GSP, Anderson Silva, and John Jones. So before we get into the numbers, I want to give a quick shout out first and foremost to John Nash and the Bloody Elbow. John Nash is, does a really good job on the business side of MMA and the Bloody Elbow is one of the leading publications in this space. I follow both of their works. I think they're incredible. I think you should go read their stuff too. But the reason why I'm giving them credit with this specifically is because the UFC didn't make this easy. In the lawsuit, they actually didn't put any names alongside the people for the compensation part of this. What they did was that they gave out the records, right? So they said how many UFC fights they had completed at that point. John then went back and decoded the names by matching them up with the different UFC fighters' records at that time to be able to determine whose event was which and who got paid X amount of dollars. So he did a lot of the legwork on this, and I want to make sure that John gets the appropriate shout out. But let's go through some of the numbers here to give you a little bit of a breakdown on how much some of these athletes are making. And then I'll talk through some of the specifics of this and some of the analysis that I thought through when thinking through these numbers as well. So let's start with Conor McGregor. There were five fights that Conor McGregor did from 2011 to 2015. We have him here, UFC 189. He did Chad Mendez. 
He earned $3.2 million for that. He then fought Aldo at 194. He made around $4.5 million for that. Then he did two Diaz fights back-to-back against Nate Diaz, 196 and 202. He made essentially $5.6 million for each of those. So just over $10 million or $11 million for those two fights combined. And then UFC 205 against Eddie Alvarez, he made $6.8 million. So this was what I would argue towards the height of Conor McGregor, right? This is 2016. This was, I guess, right before the Floyd Mayweather fight, and he was becoming incredibly popular. He was drawing $6.8 million in personal pay. That's how much he got paid for that event against Eddie Alvarez. Now, we also have Ronda Rousey, John Jones, Brock Lesnar, GSP, Anderson Silva, and other people too. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. Conor McGregor was the highest paid athlete on the list for all of his fights, Brock Lesnar did make $8 million for facing against Mark Hunt in UFC 200. That was for a big bonus, though. He got a multi-million dollar bonus for that from a pay-per-view perspective. And most of the other athletes call it John Jones. He's making somewhere between like $1 to $3 million per fight for those years. GSP was in that same ballpark, 3 to $4 million per fight. Anderson Silva, again, same ballpark, 2 to $4 million per fight. But that's where the athletes were at. Ronda Rousey, her first fight, UFC 157 in this lawsuit, she made $574,000. But then every fight after that, she made somewhere between $1.8 million to $4.8 million. So she was making a lot of money too in the grand scheme of things. Now, instead of digging into all the details and the specifics of each payment, you guys get the point. They're making you know low-level seven figures per fight, depending on maybe six, seven, or $8 million potentially per fight, depending on how big they are and the bonus that they receive from the UFC. But a few things come to mind when looking at these numbers, and that's really what I want to talk about today. Number one, these numbers serve as a reminder. This is a reminder that earnings estimates from companies like Forbes and other people like that should rarely be taken at face value. Now, I quote Forbes all the time. In most cases, it is the best estimate that we have with some of these things. But I've talked to athletes about this stuff before. I've seen different numbers myself. And now we get numbers from lawsuits specifically from the UFC, right? These are truthful numbers. These are real numbers here. And they're drastically different from what Forbes reported Conor McGargan was making at the time. Now, I don't think we can put all the blame on Forbes or whoever wrote these articles for them at the time. Conor McGregor is on record lying about these things. He has told fabrications of how much money he's been making in some of these fights. So I think some of that might be just taking him for his word. And if he's not being truthful, what can you do about it? But they said Conor McGregor made $27 million for his second DS fight and his Alvarez fight. They said he made $18 million for his Mendez, his Aldo, and his first DS fights. When in reality, Conor McGregor took home less than half of what was reported by Forbes at the time. So when Conor McGregor was labeled as the number one earning athlete in the world, whatever year that was, it was still probably accurate because all of the money came from his proper 12 sale. But on the other years, when they had him ranked up there for making all this money from his UFC fights, a lot of that wasn't true. And the one thing to keep in mind here is that you may say, okay, Joe, that's just pay-per-view money. That's just his, his contract with the UFC. What about sponsorships? What about social media? What about you know Instagram posts? Whatever it is. The reality is that he's not making anywhere near enough money from that other stuff to cover the difference from what Forbes would have been reporting and what other people would have been reporting. And the reason for that is simple. You have to remember that the UFC controls all the sponsorship stuff. So it's not like boxing where you can wear your own shorts into the ring and you're getting paid to do that. That doesn't happen in the UFC. They own the rights to the uniform. They get paid from their sponsors to have everyone wear the same stuff. They control the ring. They control the octagon, everything that's in there as well from a sponsorship perspective. So maybe he made some money on social media. Maybe he had sponsorship, stuff like that. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. I don't want to diminish that. But he didn't make enough to triple or quadruple the revenue that he was making from the fight. That's just frankly not possible. So those numbers are way off. And I think, again, this serves as just a reminder to everyone 
So be a little bit of cautious when you see these numbers come out from places like Forbes and other things like that. Their estimates, their guesses, in some cases they're accurate, in some cases they're wildly inaccurate. No one really knows until the numbers come out publicly like we've seen with the UFC and in other cases. But more importantly, these financial figures also shine a light on two potential problems for the UFC specifically. Number one, increasing competition, and number two, future compensation. Let's start with the increasing competition part. So some of you have probably seen what's going on in the space. PFL is making waves as of late. They recently just got a huge investment from Saudi Arabia. They obviously signed this new contract with Francis Ngannou. They seem to be doing a relatively good job. Now, I would argue that that's not really all that bad for the UFC. The UFC actually commented on this on their last earning call, saying that the PFL and other people like that are essentially feeder leagues to the UFC. Everyone still wants to be in the UFC, and those leagues getting stronger only builds more demand for the UFC. And I would argue that's relatively accurate, right? The UFC isn't co-promoting any events with the PFL. They're doing their own thing, and people still want to be in the UFC because in most cases, they pay the most amount of money, they give you the most exposure, and so forth. So I don't have a huge problem with that. I think that everything's good in the MMA space. All those organizations doing better is good for the UFC. But I do think that there is something to be said about what we've seen in the boxing space. So if you look at boxing, for instance, we've seen several UFC fighters over the years. I'm talking about Conor McGregor, Francis Ngannou, Nate Diaz, all these other fighters. They want to venture into the boxing world, and they're doing it, of course, for bigger paydays. Now, this is because boxing typically pays out a bigger split. The way this works in boxing is it's typically a 70-30 split between the athlete and the promoter. And the reason why this happens is what they do is they take all the ticket sales, the pay-per-view, everything else, gate, everything, and they divide it 70-30. And the fighter gets the majority of that revenue. The boxer gets the majority of that revenue. Now, there's a few different reasons why this happened. One of them would be that the financial regulations around boxing have changed a lot over the last couple of decades. There is a rule called the Muhammad Ali Reform Boxing Act that was signed into law in 2000. And essentially what that required was the disclosure of all earnings generated by a promoter for the fight. They have to be disclosed to the fighter themselves that are headlining that fight. So an example of this would be Eddie Hearn, the famous boxing promoter. He has to disclose all of the event earnings to Anthony Joshua for a fight that he headlines. So there's obviously more disclosures there. Everyone knows the amount of money that is being made and the fighters have more leverage. There's also a bunch of other nuance that goes behind the belts and the organizations and all this other stuff that gives the fighter more leverage than they would have in the UFC. But the reason, again, why they're doing this and why they're going out and venturing into boxing is because they get higher splits. Now, again, Conor McGregor, he wasn't the, the A side in that fight. Floyd Mayweather was. Same with Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury, Nate Diaz and Jake Paul. They're usually the lesser of the two. But again, in most cases, they're making more money than they could have imagined. If you look at Tommy Fury, Tommy Fury is a good example of this. Tommy Fury went from fighting on the undercard of most fights. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a professional fighter. He's a boxer. He's got a huge audience. He's been boxing basically his entire life. He's obviously related to Tyson Fury. He's got it in his bloodline. But Tommy Fury went from making like forty dollars to $50,000 on an undercard of a boxing match to making more than $10 million. He made $10 million supposedly on his last fight against KSI. So he's the perfect opponent for these guys because he comes in, he's legitimate, he's got the name, he's got the resume, but he's not actually that good. He was like 10 and 0 at the time before he started doing these YouTube fights, but he was fighting really, really, really bad boxers on undercards again for like $40,000. So if Tommy Fury can go in there and get paid $10 million to fight KSI or Logan Paul or Jake Paul or whoever it is, you're telling me that Conor McGregor and John Jones and Anderson Silva, and Ronda Rousey, and Brock Lesnar, and all these other fighters are only getting paid three to four to five million dollars to fight in the UFC. That seems like a pretty bad deal, right? So 
one of my arguments would be that the increasing competition is not only inside of MMA, but outside of MMA too. What we've seen in the celebrity boxing scene, whatever you want to call it, that scene has obviously changed a lot. And the money there is, is seems to be pretty good from a, a revenue perspective, but also in the traditional boxing scene, right? Francis Ngannou, he reportedly made, from what I've heard and many other people have said, he reportedly made about a minimum, a minimum of $10 million from his fight with Tyson Fury. That's more money than he would have ever made in a single fight potentially over years in the UFC. So that was obviously a good decision. And the whole idea that he fumbled the bag is just not true at this point. But more importantly, the fact that he performed well and the fact that other people now want to see him fight Anthony Joshua or other people like that, he's going to make even more money on his next fight because he now has some amount of leverage, right? People are going to buy the fight specifically to go watch him face another opponent. Super interesting stuff there. And again, my point is that the PFL and other organizations like that, Bellator, whatever, are not the only competition for the UFC. There's other sports that are going to bring competition. Now, again, the UFC may say that's no problem because we're raising these stars. If they go fight boxing or whatever it is, it's a different sport. They're not going to perform. They're going to come back to the UFC. And that's probably true. But the fact that they're getting their biggest payday out of the sport that they represent, I think is a concern to some degree. Again, 70-30 splits in the UFC. And I want to give you an example, just for context, so people who do not watch boxing or the UFC on the regular have an idea of how much money some of these fighters are leaving on the table by being in the UFC and not boxing. So let's use just the most basic example. I'm not going to get into all the expenses, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, that's part of all this. I don't want to diminish this, but I just want to give you a high-level example of exactly what the numbers would look like. So let's look at Conor McGregor's two of his fights that came out publicly through this lawsuit. One was at UFC 196 and one was at UFC 205. These were two fights. One was against Nate Diaz, and the second was against Eddie Alvarez. So Conor McGregor, for the first fight against Nate Diaz, he made $5.5 million. That was about 9.1% of the total revenue that the UFC collected from that event. So about 10%, we'll call it, of the revenue from that event. It was very similar numbers for UFC 205, his fight against Eddie Alvarez. He took home $6.8 million, which was a little bit more than his first fight against Nate Diaz but a similar percentage, 10.3% of the overall revenue for that event for the UFC. So on average, those two fights, Conor McGregor made about 10% of the total revenue that the event made for the UFC. Again, a lot of other stuff goes into this, but just on a face value level, he made about 10% of the total revenue of the event. If you would have calculated what he would have made at boxing as a 70-30 split with the UFC as a top headline, he would have made somewhere between 42 to $46 million right? So just, just think about that in context. He took home 5.5 to $6.8 million for those two fights, 5.5 to $6.8 million. If he had a 70-30 split with the UFC as a top headliner, those numbers would equal out to 42 to $46 million. That's a drastic, 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 drastic difference. I don't think I could say drastic enough there. That's a drastic, drastic, drastic difference in money that Conor McGregor would have taken home if the revenue split was similar to boxing. Again, Different sport, different economics, different expenses, all that stuff. I totally get it. Boxing, in most cases, the headliner is the real fight. All the undercard fights, no one's really tuning into. They want to see the headline fight. The UFC is not always like that. Sometimes there's multiple headliners. Sometimes there's other fights on the undercard that people are really interested in. I agree. There's a little bit of nuance to this. But just the idea that there's such a gap between this, I think, is a huge risk. And then that leads me to my next point, which is that if you look at the UFC in total today, they're paying out drastically lower than every other sports league to their athletes. And the way this works, again, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but these leagues negotiate through CBA. So all of these leagues, the NFL, the NBA, MLB, NHL, et cetera, all of these big US sports leagues, 
have a players union. The players union negotiates with the league to determine how much revenue they're going to, how what percentage of revenue they're going to get via salaries. So this is when we have lockouts if they can't agree. And these numbers fluctuate. They change. They're give and take depending on what the athletes get. So maybe in the NFL that the the NFL owners won't be willing to increase the amount of money that the players get from the revenue split. So the players will go to the owners and say, okay, we want to practice less, right? So again, there's nuance to this and it depends on kind of what sport you're talking about and what union you're dealing with. But most of these leagues, again, the NBA, NFL, NHL, and MLB are around 50%, plus or minus 50% that get split. So they call it basketball-related income in the NBA, for example. The players in the NBA get 51% of all basketball-related income, but for, you know, ease sake, we'll say 50%. So if $100 of income is made in the NBA, it's split 50-50. $50 of that goes to the players, $50 of that goes to the league and its owners. That happens in the NBA, that happens in the NFL, the NHL, and the MLB because they have a union. Now, that does not happen in the UFC because they don't have a union and they don't have a CBA in place. Can anyone guess where the UFC's number is, right? If the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and MLB are all plus or minus 50%, where do you think the UFC is? These numbers have been determined. They've been calculated and they're public at this point. The UFC is around 13 to 14.5%. The percentage of revenue that they pay out to their athletes in a given year, 13 to 14.5%. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the UFC is a publicly traded company at this point. Now, it's combined with the WWE, so we don't get a real deep look into all of the finances because it's treated as one entity. Maybe that changes over time. We still have a little bit of a look into the financials, but it's probably not as concrete in detail as we would like. But the reason why I'm so fascinated with this is because the UFC in 2022, they reported $1.14 billion in revenue. That came down to $387 million in profit. So that's a 34% margin. If this was ever to change for the UFC, so if they ever lost a lawsuit, if any of the rules or the laws changed, if a union was formed in the UFC, if they ever created a CBA, if they ever changed the amount of money that they were paying out relative to the other leagues, right? So they bumped that up from 13 to 14.5% to 20% or 25% or 40% or 50%. That's directly impacting this business's margins, right? So 34% margins, Pretty damn good. They brought in $387 million in profit last year. You cannot tell me that they cannot pay their athletes more. They can, absolutely 100%. But they now have shareholder, right? And what is the what is the idea behind a shareholder? You're there to maximize shareholder value. So the UFC, Dana White, obviously the people that are running this business today are not going to be willing or want to change this anytime soon. These numbers have actually decreased over time. Don't quote me on this, but I believe maybe two to three to four years ago, this number was up around 18%. And it's now gone down to 13 to 14.5%. So it's actually getting worse, not better. And this is one of those things that everyone needs to keep their eye on. Because if this lawsuit ends up going the distance and these athletes, these fighters win this lawsuit, we may see fundamental change in the way that UFC not only treats its athletes, but compensates its athletes. And that can have a, a negative impact on the stock price, obviously, of TKO. But it can have a negative impact on how this business is run. Because today, hey, they're kings. $387 million in revenue last year and profit last year, 34% margins, $1.14 billion in revenue, probably going to cross $1.2, $1.3 billion in revenue this year. Things are going well. Like I said, everything's firing on all cylinders. But it certainly doesn't feel right that someone like Conor McGregor is only making 5 to $6 million per fight. Now, I get it. That's a lot of money. But when you zoom out, you look at the context of this. If you add up all of Conor McGregor's fights over the last decade in the UFC, He's obviously one of the company's biggest stars. Even from a marketing perspective, you can't even possibly place value on that. But just the gates, the pay-per-view, everything else from the headline events that he has been involved in, 
he's generated a billion dollars in revenue for the UFC. So him getting paid five, six million dollars a fight obviously is significantly lower than you would imagine. And it's much lower than not only what he earned in boxing, but other leagues like the NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, MLS, et cetera, would pay out to their athletes because again, they have a union and they have a CBA in place. So I'll keep you guys updated on this stuff as things progress. Like I said, things continue to get more interesting week by week as more information comes out. This isn't going to be the last you heard about this lawsuit. Things are progressing faster than we could have even possibly imagined. And more details are sure to come out over the coming weeks and months and potentially years at this point. That's it for today, though, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and you were able to learn something. I know I had a bunch of fun putting it together for everyone. If you haven't done so yet, please make sure you rate and review the podcast. Leave me five stars. Tell me what you're enjoying or what I could be doing better. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great week and we'll talk later.